for another edition of Tennis.com's weekly podcast. And here's your host, James Martin. All right, welcome to the Tennis.com podcast. We have a, well, Steve Tigner might call it a spicy meatball topic today. We've already been getting some comments about what we promised to talk about. And that, of course, is, is Roger Federer too smug for his own good? Too conceited? Um, I already hear the emails being typed in as, as we're talking. Uh, I'm James Martin with Steve Tigner and Peter Bodo. And just so people know, we're not making this up and pulling this out of our arse, as they would say. There has been some, uh, well, some, some reporting and some articles written about Roger and his attitude from the Times Online in England. The smugness and skill of Super Swiss stands out. It's one of the titles. And uh, basically, it goes back, guys, to what happened during the Australian Open, the press conferences, and after it. Um, we'll just give the quick, just a quick overview of this and get into it. But basically, Federer coming out saying in 2008, he kind of making excuses for that year after he's just won the Australian Open and talking about how he was sick and coming back from mono and kind of making, well, making a bit of excuse of why he didn't play and how he performed so poorly, despite the fact that in 08 he won, reached the semifinals finals, finals, and the and then won the, the U.S. Open for the majors. Um, Steve, this this obviously comes off, this can come across as, as, as a little bit smug, conceited. I mean, uh, I don't, I don't think, for the most part, I don't think he is. Uh, the, I think the driving aspect of Federer's personality is competitiveness, which is not a surprise for a professional athlete, but there have definitely been, there. I, I remember a press conference at Indian Wells a couple years ago where he, somebody referenced a soccer game that he'd played when he was 12 years old, and Federer got in the fact that he'd scored two goals in that game, <laughs> which didn't, it didn't strike me as being cocky so much. It's just he's, he's a competitive guy, and he, you know, he, he's proud of, of being good at these things. He, I think when he first became number one, I felt like there was a little bit of cockiness to him that maybe as he grew into the role, he, he learned to, I don't know, he learned to tamp it down a little bit, and also having Nadal come along and, and dethrone him for a while, that also, that also left him humbled him a little bit but I, th- I just think he doesn't do false modesty that's his you know he's, he doesn't do self-deprecation which would come across as as strange or, or false the only comment that I had an issue with at the Australian Open this year was uh, he, after he beat um, Igor Andreev he, he said something like something about how low, lower ranked players can come in if they beat him they're heroes and if they play well and lose they'll still have an incredible experience which I just don't think we need I don't think other players want to hear that. I don't think we need to hear Roger Federer saying that. Yeah, and I, I mean, Pete, I mean, I don't think he's smug. I think that's that's a loaded word, probably not not fair to him. But um, and and I think you do have to have that that edge if you're going to be a, a player of his caliber, right? I mean, you have to have some sort of edge to yourself. I mean, you can't fault the guy for that. No, but I mean, hey, look, Roger's one of those people who, you know, one of the very few people on his earth who, who actually could start talking about himself in a third person, and, and people would say, hey, you know, the guy's earned it. So, yeah, let's keep that in mind. You know, the only thing worse than no humility is false humility. So I'm sort of with Steve and saying, look, nobody wants this guy walking around saying, oh, I was really lucky today. I won my 16th Grand Slam. And, you know, you know, there's, there's actually something childish, you know, boyish and maybe even childish about the sort of wide-eyed wonder with which he sometimes perceives his own career. And you could say that that's a lot of things. You could say that's smug. You could say it's arrogant. You could say it's self-absorbed. You know, but the one thing it, it, it isn't really is calculated because you could tell it's, it's kind of goofy, actually. When, so. you see, when you see it printed, uh, sometimes it can sound worse than it is. It'll say, I had an incredible match or something. But when you see him say it in a press conference, he's just genuinely amazed and happy that, that right. his performance. Yeah, and he's also kind of deadpan. You know, Federer, Federer said some pretty funny things in a very sort of deadpan fashion. And, and, and kind of matter of fact, you know, there's that matter of fact bluntness about him, which is, 
you know, I think some people might say it's kind of a Germanic Swiss kind of a, a tendency and stuff, you know, where, where he'll, he, you know, he'll, he'll very bluntly say something that everybody's thinking and maybe some other people wouldn't say. Reminds, so any, me of, reminds me of Martina Hingis, too, speaking of the Swiss, yes. yeah. Swiss element. Does, but does anyone bother? I mean, I'm a big fan of Fetters. I think we all are to different degrees. Um, but was anyone bothered with the fact that he was talking about how he got sick in 08 and he had mono, which, I mean, for, for me, seeing what mono does to virtually everybody else, Anchix had basically destroyed his career, and even just an average guy can knock you out for three, six months, a year. He has it. He's back and into the semifinals. Great effort. Well, to start, you have to, you have to realize he's asked questions about this stuff all the time. So if he's going to answer, he's going to answer honestly, and he's, he has to come up with some answer. But I think you're right. Don't, don't go back. Just, just don't mention it. St- stop mentioning it. Nadal has gone back and also said that he does it, yeah. his knees hurt. Um, he didn't say it after, right after the match, but a few months later he said his knees were hurting him in the Soderly match. And Federer's done similar things about his, with his back. Hey, uh, let's remember, this guy's surrounded by people who are telling him, oh, Raj, you know, man, if uh, you really, really take him to the cleaners if you wouldn't, if you wouldn't have had that mono. So he's got a lot of people, you know, everyone, you know, you know when you got somebody like a Federer, this guy's like, you know, like a jewel, you know, and everybody around him is, is going to be telling him, you know, is going to be trying to, you know, make his life easier and, and you know, and kind of rationalizing or justifying or explaining things that may go wrong because, of course, you know, the premise, and I totally understand and, and, and think it's, it's, a, it's a perfectly fine idea. The premise is this guy should win every tennis match he ever plays, and if he doesn't, there's something wrong with him. Well, and also the point is that things go wrong. I mean, for top players, he's had so very little go wrong for him that, I mean, it's, to even bring up anything seems almost ludicrous to me because he's, he's been so healthy. But one thing that, that Pete over here has brought up is, uh, and I know you've got a lot of stick on the on the blog for this, Pete. Is is that Roger has an asterisk next to uh, next to his name a bit? And uh, before we blow that theory asunder, do you uh, you want to share with us your thoughts there for those that haven't read your blog? Well, I don't know if I should do that first because <laughs> if you're going to blow the theory asunder, then I then I think I'm going to set a pretty high bar for you. Look, all I'm saying is, is I give the guy full credit for winning the French Open, for getting a career slam, but. You ask yourself, anybody who's listening should ask him or herself this. When you think about Roger Federer winning the French Open, how far from your thoughts are the fact that Rafael Nadal was out to Robin Soderling and in all likelihood very injured? I don't think it's a crime. I don't want to take any credit away from Federer. The fact of the matter is you cannot think about that match in any substantial way whatsoever without taking into account that Nadal was knocked out. Just look at the history of these two guys at the French Open. Look, it's a no-brainer. Nadal on form beats Federer at the French Open. You know, that's, you know, if you think that's insulting to Federer, fine. You're, you're entitled to that opinion. But the bottom line is the name, the, Nadal's name is linked to that French Open final in, in a way that you just can't extricate. It's true. Team. You don't, you, it does come into your mind, but in a way it, it shouldn't and it can't because it's like the head-to-head argument we had. Federer goes into the French Open to win the French Open, not to beat Nadal. So he's done everything he can do. So I don't, you know, even the notion of an asterisk seems wrong to me. He's also 5-4 and four on other surfaces against Nadal. But, all, I mean, well, do, we, do, we think, do we think with Sampras that we have an asterisk next to his name because he never, I mean, it's not the same thing because we're not talking about head-to-head, but Sampras never even got to the final of the French. Laver only played one slam on clay, the other three on grass. Did, did, was that always in the back of your mind when, you, when we were calling it's those also, guys the greatest? Well, when you're, calling, when you're calling Pete Sampras the greatest, absolutely. The asterisk was there. He never won a French Open. I think, I think the first people, especially now, the first people to sort of, you know, to, to say that that's a valid point of view would be the Federer fans. And so, the, you know, the, there are right. situations where there's an asterisk. Look, nobody's going to look back at the Australian Open where Federer beats Baghdadis and think about, the, they're going to think he won the Australian Open. At, you're not going to think, well, yeah, but he beat Baghdadis in a final. I mean, 
yeah, if you go down deep enough in the analysis, you might say all right, Baghdadis wasn't the toughest final final round opponent, but the, but the French Open really was a different case, you know. And, and, and you look at all, you don't even think about it with Roddick, you know. You don't even think about uh, his win over Roddick at Wimbledon last year with the Astros. Yeah, but he went sixteen fourteen with Roddick. But look, the French Open is a slightly different case. All power to credit, all power and credit to Federer. The record book is what it is, but you cannot. Nobody thinks about it. You know, Steve said you shouldn't and you can't, but in fact we do. One and thing I would do. say is you could also look at it as it was, a, it was a unique challenge for Federer to continue to win once he knew Nadal was out of the draw. He immediately lost two sets to Tommy Haas. He right. must have felt some incredible pressure. that It, this, it had to happen now. And it came down. And he, he won and he, he fought through a couple really tough matches. So in a way, it's, maybe he didn't beat Nadal, but he, he did something uniquely challenging in, in still winning the French, doing what he had to do. Oh, yeah, no, I thought, more power to him. I gave the guy all the credit in the world. I mean, look, that match with Del Potro was no gimme either. So, I mean, look, the guy did a... I, in fact, I think the greatest... But here again, this is where the asterisk comes in. What was Federer's greatest achievement at the French Open? Well, in my, in my mind, his greatest achievement was seeing the opportunity and capitalizing it and seizing it against quality players. The toughest position anybody could have been in in tennis. You know, I mean, it's, it was one of the toughest positions any Anybody's been in tennis in a long time. The guy who's always blocked your path, the guy who is expected to beat you every time in that specific situation, suddenly he vanishes. Well, you it's know, like Andres Gomez. Lundell's out of the French. He finally wins his French. Well, there at you the go. same level, obviously. But well, no, but I mean, Gomez wasn't a contender at the slams. So I, don't, I think that's kind of an apples and oranges comparison. Well, he, bought, he lost to Lundell like four or five times at the French, though. Lundell's out. He wins the French that year, and it was his only chance that he would ever done it. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, but I mean, okay, you know, I mean, we can come up with comparable examples, but I don't think anything has ever resonated that much. The minute Nadal no, I agree, I agree. loses in that match, everyone is saying, can Federer do it? That's an enormous amount of pressure, maybe more pressure than I've ever seen. So we start out trying to individual. criticize Roger, and we end, <laughs> end up, how do we end up? <laughs> hey, listen, I, I just don't want to, <laughs> I just don't want to get all those people after uh, me again. <laughs> um, and, and one thing that's nice about Federer, this will be a nice segue into the, the other thing we want to talk about is, and Nadal is that they're clearly two players that relish competing. Federer, you know, he's hitting his late 20s. He's in his late 20s. He wants to play, keep playing. And he, he understands how, how blessed he is to be able to, to play a game for a living. And there's a couple players out there, uh, the Plan B guys, the guys that don't have Plan Bs, Pete Sampras and, and, and Murat Safin. Uh, it's supposed to be a pretty quiet week in, in tennis, really. There's, not, there's Rotterdam and a few other events going on. But Pete Sampras comes out and um, – he announces to everybody, it's pretty funny, like, you know, I've got time on my hands. And uh, he said that if the USTA wants to step up, and, and I assume by that he means pay, pay Pete a, a tidy sum, he'll make a champion out of these up-and-coming Americans, um, says he can help their attitude and, and such. And uh, Pete, you know, you did the, uh, the book with, with, with Sampras, his autobiography. You know, what do you see Come in on, this? Come plug I mean, the title at least, The Champion's the, Mind. The Champion's <laughs> Mind. I don't know if The Champion's Mind is, is whirling as quickly as it should, but I mean, He's just kind of like, I'm bored. Hey, give me a gig. I mean, the best players typically don't make the best coaches, but I mean, is he, do you find him serious about this or is he just bored and is tired of watching Sports Center and sitting around at home? Oh, I think Pete's serious about it. I just think that, you know, I, I think a guy in his position doesn't really know kind of what all that entails. Look, every great player has said that. John McEnroe's said things like that. Now, he's, you know, uh, now he's got another career. He's, he's plenty busy, but he's, he said he was willing to. Connors also in, in the past, plenty of times, before he took on his first coaching gig with you know with Andy Roddick at the top has said things like that but look when you commit to when you when you want to help kids who are 14 15 16 years old who are you know maybe have the potential to be top players, you know, to commit to them. You, you, you don't just go in and give the kid a 20-minute pep talk and tell him what it was that made you great. And I think, I, I think the thing Pete has to 
do here in this case is think about, look, do I want to take this particular assignment on? Uh, and, 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 you know, am I willing to basically do the sort of grunt work that it takes to, to, help, yeah, to would, really help one of these kids in a substantial Pete way? It seems like it would make more sense, the Connors mold of, a, of an, taking an already established player and, and helping him get to a, an even higher level. That's Through motivation more. Through motivation. And, and also it would be less, um, less time-consuming, less workload on, on Pete. I, it's hard to imagine if he doesn't need the money that he would, would want to do, do, like Pete said, the, the grunt work on... Uh, to help younger players. Yeah, this is one of the problems. I mean, these, these people all have made a tremendous amount of money, every one of them who's, who's retired after having been a Grand Slam champion, whatever age they've retired at. And, you know, you know, you know their, their, their market value is so high that, you know, they're going to they're gonna look at what, what seems reasonable money to people like the USTA. They're not going to want to do anything for what, that kind what, of money. Wasn't there something, I, I took it, when I saw his quotes, and again, reading quotes is always tricky, but I thought it, there was a little condescension with Sampras kind of just saying, hey, I'm here. The USTA should be calling me if they want to step and pay me the big bucks. I'll create the champion, and I'll be the one that comes in and, and does what the USTA clearly can't do. And I and I felt it, w- it was a little bit of a backhanded compliment or a backhanded slap to the USTA. I mean, they're working hard. They're, you have to credit the USTA for doing a lot of different things under Patrick McEnroe trying to... to it sounded be, like he, Pete was might have been a little insulted that he hadn't been asked yeah, already. That's the sense I got. Well, listen, they had talked. You know, I guarantee you they had mm-hmm. talked. I, I know for a fact that they've talked. I'm working on a book with Patrick McEnroe now, and we cover some of this stuff stuff in there. But, you know, the, 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 you know, the, the thing here is that I think there's... Look, there are a number of people... And this holds true of coaches as well as some top players. A lot of them step forward. They have ideas. Those ideas are, of course, valid. I mean, who knows more about winning at the top than Pete Sampras? There are, there are coaches who have ideas. Robert Landsdorf. <laughs> there, there you go. I, don't, I just kind of wonder how much he... He never has been an inspiration to people except when he played. He's not an inspiration when he talks. He's pretty boring, let's face it. And his st- style of play is nothing like what people well, that was do today. That was the Rod Laver uh, thing when he tried to... We tried to coach kids. He would just say, "Just give it a nudge. Just, <laughs> exactly. just do what I did." Well, that's a, that's a little bit of the problem. You know, Pete's a very no nonsense, you know, cut and dried kind of cut to the chase kind of guy. He says, "Look, kid, shut up and hit that serve. Just put it in the corner of the box." I mean, so yeah, <laughs> there's you know that factor. You know, that factor is something to consider. But there again, you know, Pete has ideas. He sees these guys. I know. I know he thinks there's not enough attacking tennis being played. There's a real argument to make to be made there whether that can be a successful style or not these days. So there are a lot of lot of issues here. The point is, I think that you have really have to kind of make a commitment in a situation like this. And a lot of these, even a guy like Robert Lansdorp, who helped shape Pete's game and shaped a lot of other games as well, these guys all think they have, or, or they kind of suggest that they kind of have the magic bullet, or they complain about the USTA not calling them. Trust me, the USTA has reached out to a lot of people. The thing is, everybody has terms and conditions. Well, I really want to help, but I want to do it my way. Well, what's your way? Well, let's talk about that after we make a deal. Well, we can't make a deal because we don't know if your way is going to fit with our way. There are a lot of things come into this. And I think very rightly, I think some of the USTA leadership there in, in the player development program feels that, you know, no, none of these people has really shown an adequate sort of fundamental interest in, hey, what I want to do is help young kids develop into champions in the U.S. How can I help you out? And, and you know, maybe that's asking too much of a great champion like Sampras. That's a matter of opinion, I think. But th- 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 it always starts out as a negotiation, never as, an, a, as a simple approach to help. I wonder help. if Pete could, could best help somebody win Wimbledon, get over the hump and win Wimbledon, because he knows that so well. I don't know, somebody like Roddick, some, somewhere he could consult in, in, in that specific way. It would be interesting. I mean, I think even there, though, look at, Look at remember the last ma- the match Federer and Sampras played back in you know one Wimbledon and how it's ch- how that court has changed since Pete was winning those slams. I mean, it, it is a dramatic difference of, of the speed of that court, the bounce That's of that true. court, and 
I mean, I, for, I'd like to see Pete coach someone like a Devin Britton, someone who is actively trying to incorporate certain volume into his game and be aggressive. That would be kind of an interesting mix to see. You know, I, I don't know if Devin's big enough fish or no, promising enough in Pete's eyes to, to do something like that. But to me, at least there would be kind of an interesting experiment because here's a kid that wants to do play that aggressive tennis, and here's somebody that you know played it as well as you can. That could be kind of cool. Yeah, and I think I, I think Pete's got a lot to offer in terms of this his his kind of no baloney approach to things and his his cut and dried. You know, some people think he's cynical. Some people, you know, say he's got an edge. Well, yeah, you know, but but Pete, the one thing Pete has never been and never and the one thing he couldn't stand is kind of phoniness and people saying things just for the sake of saying them, etc. So I I think he could really help a kid like a Devin Britton. But the question is, you know, what what constitutes helping a Devin Britton? Do you do you do you actually meet with him? You know. You know, twice a year, do you actually give him a call before a big match, or do you actually go on a road with him, spend a week with him, have him come down and train with you? I think Pete's open to doing those kinds of things too. Uh, I don't think is you know there's any question about that. You know, but it's a matter of whether he wants to make that commitment. And I think the USTA is open to that too. I think the USTA would like nothing better than to have a, a guy like a Sampras work with a Devon Britton. You know, as long as they know what's going on. Well, there is one player who needs a coach, right, Roger Federer. He's still, still yeah, looking for a coach. Yeah, I, I think you, you help know. further shatter my records. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Here's I think Federer needs a coach. Let's reinvent the Federer needs a coach argument. Well, because <laughs> obviously Pete's getting his plan B in order. Maybe he's he's trying to figure out what to do with his life now that that he's he's played some seniors events or or the Outback uh, tour. And the guy that's now come back into tennis after a long long hiatus of what two months, Murat Safin. This is the biggest clown move I've seen in a while. I mean Safin last year. He was the most miserable person I've seen on a tennis court over that length of time. Yeah, occasionally he'd get inspired. Occasionally he'd want to win a match. But watching him in Miami and play, he was just smashing rackets, looking disgruntled, disinterested, saying he was sick of tennis. He wants to go do other things. This is the guy that goes and wants to climb Himalayan mountains, doesn't make it past base camp, and uh, basically shows that he hates tennis. And guess what? He's back. <laughs> He's playing the senior tour. I mean, this is this is a guy. That I guess he wants a trip to Rio, right? But I'm surprised he would want to actually play tennis. And I'm surprised he would put himself in front of a in a press conference again. He seemed, if he was miserable on the court, he was ten times more miserable during the press conferences of the last year. Hey, you ever spent two months in Moscow in the winter? <laughs> it's enough do, to do make you, you go. Do, do you think he I'd was go out break rocks in the hot sun? Do you think he was like watching the tennis in in, in his apartment? Why in doesn't Moscow he just go to Rio and lay on the beach? Forget well, the yeah, as he as somebody pointed out when I made a similar point about Moresmo, you know. Uh, the other day, you know, hey, look, it's not like this guy can't afford to buy an air ticket and go to Australia and hang out on a beach. But no, I, I think, you know, I, I'm not as tough on him as you are, James. I mean, you know, I, I think Safin, you know, Safin bought a lot to the game. He was really tired of the grind. And maybe the fact that he no longer has to do it in a big way on a big stage where he's in danger of going out there and, and, and getting his fanny whooped by Roger Federer. Well, he should beat everybody, right? Well, no, you know, senior tour. Still. If, if, he, if he loses to he'll Curry find a way not to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, if he's, if, I mean, it's just kind of sad, and I think it just shows. I mean, there's a, he's not alone in this, and people nah, are talking about sad. this. There's nothing sad about it. This, this guy wants to go play some tennis. What's it's, sad it's, about it's a good it thing. is that he's he essentially wasted last year on the tour, and that was a waste. I mean, he was pathetic, is what he was. He wasn't moving. He was a shell of himself, and now he wants to play tennis again. And it's kind of like you didn't appreciate what you had when you had it, and now you're playing with. It would have been nice to things. think that he could have found something else. He he talked a lot about finding other things outside of tennis. In, well, this, in this coming and year. And guess what? There aren't. If, if, you, if you don't have, and this is not a knock. I mean, when you're a professional athlete and all you do your whole life 
is train, play, train, play, train, play. It's hard to get other interests, admittedly so, but and also couldn't to have be a dawn getting on him? Guys, he's playing one tournament. It's not like he's going to be out there on a tour. He's, he's committed to this one champions tournament in Rio. We all know they have beautiful girls in Rio. Yeah, you know, I mean, hey, come on, what's, what's, what's the problem here? He wants to take a week and go play tennis and make a, a pile. I guarantee you he's going to get a pile of money. So why not string those rackets, go out there, play for a week, and The winner gets 60K. Get I looked life. that up. I was interested to find that out, so I looked on the thing. The winner gets 60K. Do, do they, I don't know if they do... Appearance fees, though, for, for the Yes, outback. they do. I'm sure, sure, Marat, do. I'm sure Marat would get one. You think he's going to get something? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, no, no. no They'll get some serious money there. It's, you know, the prize money structure is a, is, a, is a separate entity there. But there is prize money. I think Jim Courier, the guy who operates the tour, basically has always wanted to stress that there, that there is prize money involved there. So that's, that is something to keep in mind. But no, I, I, I think it's fine, actually. I'm, I'm kind of happy to see him back. People love him. I, I, I agree. I mean, what do you... Yeah, whatever. I mean, I think it's I think it's kind of clownish. But what you guys just before we end this podcast, I mean, what are your thoughts of the seniors tour now that he maybe plays some others? I mean, there's Courier Sampras is involved. There's Agassi out there potentially in the mix down the road. Although he's obviously got body issues. But I mean, you, are you guys more to interested? Continues or? to survive, and I think I would watch Safin play Agassi for sure. I mean, if they if you keep getting players like that to to involved, it'll it'll keep going and. and People love retired players. They, even, the, even tennis fans are notorious for not appreciating players when they're on the tour and then loving them 10 years later, 10 years after they can't see or, them anymore. Or two months. Well, two it's months. a good thing for <laughs> small venues. You know, it's a great way, you know, if, you, if you've got you know, a nice little tennis club somewhere, some tennis mad community or, or even some, some big city, you, know, you get a couple of big names in there. You make a kind of a social event. Everybody goes out. That's you know, like the Connors Tour. They, they did very well with that, you know, going to these small clubs in these suburban neighborhoods and stuff, and they would have you know, s- you know, two 3,000 people at, you know, maybe at best watching. But you know, it, it worked for everybody because the money get, was less for You also the got to see a different side of the players. I, I watched Connors play Vielander in Central Park uh, maybe 10 years ago, and Connors was just a completely different person. He was probably the way he is off the court in general, very, very funny, very self-deprecating, None of the bloodlust from his career, and it was it was nice. It was nice to see. And Borg and Macron actually might play one of the Outback events uh, coming up. And is it April? Uh, I think they have a uh, last weekend in April. Last uh, weekend in April, they each play a first round or whatever they call it, and then if they win. They play each other, so that could be kind of cool. Yeah, the, the downside here really, though, is that, look, look, look it's got to be said, the golf, you know, senior golf sort of works because, you know, you know, golf, you know, you can be a fat old guy and play golf and still and, look good. And watch these other guys. Yeah. But the trouble is once you get to, once you're pushing 35, 40 years old, running around in short pants on a tennis court where you really, you know, your athletic skills are really, really necessary is, you know, that that's a, that's a, a different um, Yeah, nobody wants to see there, a 40-year-old you know? running around on a tennis court. Yeah, and there, and there, and there are plenty of them. <laughs> Decrepit. <and>, <laughs> You know, unless he's a very, very big name, in which case people start to. And frankly, in that, you know, in that vein, I, I think John McEnroe should get big props for the level he's played. Oh, he's yeah, it's incredible and sustained. He's an amazing player. Well, the mix of the the Outback Tour right now is kind of interesting because you're getting somewhat of the younger guys. You see Wayne Ferrer, who's not that old. You have Todd Martin, a Jim Courier, Pete Sampras. I mean, these guys are still relatively speaking young. And then you throw in a McEnroe, Borg, and some a Pat Cash. That that's the, those are. Big differences in, in where those guys are at physically. Yeah, you're going to see some interest. You know, you're, you're, and you're going to see interesting tennis from those guys. McEnroe is well, it's incredible to see that. That was worth watching when he when he would play matches on, against tour players. He was just barely below. He pl- I watched him play Anchik in London a few years ago, and it was an exhibition, but nevertheless, he was just slightly a level below Anchik. He could challenge him. His service. I mean, I've seen him a bit too. I mean, and he's spoken about this. I think he's 
he's a better player. It's the old adage: the better you get, you know, the older you get, the better you are mentally, but not maybe physically. But he's—I thought he served really well. Where's that big lefty serve? Maybe this guy Bellucci can can reinvent the big lefty <laughs> Bellucci, can the open Johnny serve. Man. Right there, you, you go. Know? That'll be the last word for today's podcast. So. <laughs> um, so keep uh, sending our comments, uh, hate mail, fan letters, whatever you like to podcast at tennis.com and we'll uh, we'll be back with another pod talking basically answering some letters from you guys and uh, and then once the tour really gets cooking up as the Master Series come we'll have uh, a bit more to talk about and hopefully get some guests in here as well so uh, with Peter Bodo and Steve Tigner I'm James Martin and we're out of here you've been enjoying tennis.com's weekly podcast thanks for listening for all the latest news and events head over to tennis.com <laughs>